Welcome to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast. I'm Tracy Chernoff, and I've spent my entire professional career in HR. Each week, we'll explore the delicate balance between people and business with the aim to reconnect the two and create meaningful outcomes. Listen in as I share my own experiences, challenge the status quo, and chat with guests from various industries about our mission to bring the human back to human resources. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here for another week. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe wherever you're listening to or watching this episode. This week, we're going to talk all about pay transparency, and I'm not going to do it alone. I have Ramiz Kaleem with me, who is the founder and managing director at 3R Strategy, an independent reward consultancy dedicated to helping organizations build a culture of trust through pay transparency. He graduated in economics at University College in London and had various in-house reward consultancy roles before founding 3R Strategy. 3R Strategy supports organizations on their journey to pay transparency, covering rewards transparency, job evaluation and architecture, pay structure design, and equal pay. Often, the term pay transparency is misunderstood, as we all know very well, as simply the act of publishing salaries, but it's important its importance runs much deeper. In his new book, A Case of the Mondays, Ramiz explains how pay transparency can help build trust in the workplace using engaging illustrations, practical tips, and relatable examples to bring the concept to life. So Ramiz, welcome to the podcast. I'm really glad that we're finally getting to talk about this and and getting to have you on the podcast because it's such an important topic. Hi, Tracy. Uh, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. Now I'm looking forward to talking about all things related to pay transparency. Yes. So maybe we should just dive right in. You know, in your bio, I the last thing that I talked about was the misunderstanding that pay transparency is just publishing salaries. So as far as the importance running deeper, what, what would you say are some of the other critical points that pay transparency highlights? So, I, I think when we talk about transparency in general, um, it's... A lot of it is around giving people context and um, what people want to know is that they're being treated fairly. And so I think it's giving context around how we make pay decisions, uh, why we manage pay the way we do. And so giving that context gives people an understanding that the process is fair. Uh, And I think that's what ultimately a lot of people are looking for is knowing that they're being treated fairly. And so, um, for example, in the book and then how... um, I like to talk about pay transparency is almost like a scale. So you have, what do we pay our Mm -hmm. employees? Um, Why do we manage pay the way we do? And the why is all around our philosophy, our strategy. And then how do we do this in practice? And that's all through our policies and our processes. And it's really, I think, um, uh, a, a lot of the focus needs to be on the how and the why. So being clear about our strategy and then having policies and processes in place to to make sure that we're managing pay consistently for our employees. Yeah, it's a, it's really true. And it's a great point. And for the listeners, you know, there are certainly listeners out there who might not have as much of an influence over the policies in their organizations. Maybe they're just starting out in their careers. And then of course, on the other end, there are listeners who are, you know, very well established in their roles. So, um, and maybe more senior in their careers. So, what would you say is the first step for someone to establish, you know, a strong set of principles when it comes to transparency in pay, understanding all of those priorities that you just shared? <clears throat> I, th- I think it's um, 
you know, we, we, we need to realize that uh, pay can't be looked at in isolation because if we have an organization with a, a toxic environment and, you know, micromanaging, lack of trust, mm-hmm. we can't just expect pay transparency to just suddenly lead to a culture of trust. So I think pay transparency is a great way t- to build a culture of trust uh, because it's, you know, it's the first thing that people see when they're applying for jobs. And if we can't even be transparent and fair with them at this early stage in our career, then it's we're off to a bad start. But I think that also fits in with the wider uh, concepts around having a sense of purpose and having a sense of belonging. And I think those three things I would say is uh, are critical. And so um, as, as an organization, it's, you have to start with having a sense of purpose. And I don't know if you know about Simon Sinek, who always mm-hmm. talks about starting with why. And I think that's where the whole concept yeah. comes in. And then this... Um, Brené Brown talks a lot about the concept of a sense of belonging. And I think those two things are critical. Um, if we look at the research around Generation Z employees, even millennials, they're, they're seeking this real sense of purpose and belonging. And the third thing is transparency. And again, the research tells us that uh, Generation Z employees are actually thinking about um, sacrificing some of their pay in order to work in an environment where there is trust, there's transparency. And so I think we should be using arguments like this uh, to try and influence our leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study just a few weeks ago published by Adobe called the um, the Future of Workforce Study. And it found that 85% of Generation Z employees would uh, probably not even apply for a job if there wasn't a salary range uh, listed alongside it. And so <clears throat> I think... Wow. You know, the, the Generation Z is going to become an increasingly larger portion of the workforce. And if we use arguments like this to to demonstrate how this really impacts our ability to attract and retain employees, hopefully that will influence some of our leaders. That's really, really compelling. You know, right before we started recording, I was taking a look around your LinkedIn, which I sometimes do just to see, you know, what are some recent things in thought leadership that you've shared or, you know, anything like that. And I saw that you wrote a post about how there are probationary periods sometimes for individuals at companies and that this sends a message that an employee, when they start, needs to earn the trust of the organization and that ultimately trust is a two-way street. And I really, really, I should have liked it, but I just like quickly jumped on this recording. Okay, so I didn't, but I will, I will go back because yeah, right. <laughs> right. It was such a compelling post because, you know, part of me was like, yeah, you know, that's like the typical, typical, uh, you know, standard offer letter or contract, depending on the organization. It's like infused to protect the company. So if something doesn't work out, they can easily move through to termination. But you're absolutely right that it sends a, a you know a very subtle and maybe not so subtle message that that person who is now starting has something to prove and that there's trust to build but there's no responsibility in trust building on the employer so it made me think about how i guess how you could you know taking that a step further how trust is built as a two-way street and what employers can do again, kind of through this lens of transparency so that it's not just the employee having to prove something, but that also the employer is is um, providing 
you know, actions that show that they can be trustworthy as well. Yeah. I, so I, I, I think that is such a, you know, when somebody joins an organization, essentially it's the start of a relationship, an employee employer mm-hmm. relationship. And it's such a bad way to start a relationship where we're essentially saying to somebody, prove yourself to us in these first three or six months. And if you do, um, we'll give you access to sick pay, we'll give you access to these benefits, and we'll give you access to all these other things that everyone else has, but you have to first prove yourself that we trust you. And um, so I think that's a really way to start a relationship. And for example, the way we do it is, and so we have this rule at uh, 3R Strategy to say anything that we recommend to our clients, we have to make sure that we do it. So we don't have any probationary mm. periods. And so everyone has access to everything from day one. Uh, everyone is part of the team. Um, and I think that is a way of demonstrating that, look, this is a, a two-way thing and we're both equal partners in this. Because interestingly, when I when I posted that, you, you do have a lot of people, including HR people, who uh, comment on that and say, well we really like probationary periods because uh, it gives an opportunity and actually it's a two-way thing. It gives the employee some time to think about, yeah. is this the right company for me? And it gives the employer a chance to say, is this the right person for us? And I think, uh, yes, maybe it is a two-way street, but we have to think about the power dynamic, right? So somebody um, relies on uh, the company, their salaries, their livelihood, they've given up another organization, they might have moved, um, uh, relocate, relocated somewhere to get that job. Whereas for organizations, it's just one person out of a hundred or thousands of other people. So there's a huge power dynamic. So we can't really say this is a two-way thing and um, expect mm-hmm. all of the risk on the employee you know, relatively low risk on the employer side. Um, And because the employee is taking such a big risk, I think we have to demonstrate um, some goodwill and say, look, we trust you. We've interviewed you among all of these other people and we've decided to go with you. And so we're going to assume that you are good and that we trust you rather Mm -hmm. than saying, prove to us that you are good and that we can trust you. This is, I, I really appreciate you um, flipping the script on this because while I initially was thinking through the HR lens, to your point, as many commented on your posts in that way, there was also this other lens that you just shared that, you know, who's to say that that someone is going to, you know, take that and, and understand like the, the, that this is like a two-way street to your point, but really, and ultimately, I think in the US specifically, probationary periods are kind of silly because in al- almost all states, basically every state except Montana, the the employment relationship is at will. So employees can um, leave whenever they want without notice and employers can terminate technically whenever they want without any documentation or notice. Of course, that is a very black and white way of saying something very gray because termination is always very gray. But I'm sure that in other countries, especially in the UK, where employment and employment rules are different, um, that these probationary periods are what companies are relying on to have some flexibility. But to your point, 
you're going through all of these interviews. You've decided that you've found the best talent out there and you're so excited. And then you kind of cut them off at the knees and you're like, oh, well, you know, we're really excited to have you, but you're going to have to prove yourself for the next 90 days. So I totally agree with the, the perspective that you have. And I think it does challenge the status quo because so often decision makers at companies are thinking through this like very jaded lens of how do I protect the company? How do I protect the company? But it's HR's responsibility to also think about the way that policies message the culture. Yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I think when we think about HR policies, a lot of the times these policies are set up because let's say, let's assume that there are, let's say 2% of people that do join us that uh, for some reason, uh, don't fit in or are, don't perform. Our policies and process, a lot of the times, are made for that 2%. So how do we manage those 2% rather than how do we make the most out of the 98% that we have and are loyal to us and are going to work for us? So if we, you know, it's it's if we assume that most people are good and they're going to work well with us and they can be trusted then the benefit that we get from that is is just so much more than the you know the the negative side of a few bad apples Ooh, that is such a great point i i made a note of this actually <laughs> because it's so true every it, it's so true just period end of discussion every policy when we even when we think about risk assessment as we operate within like an HR function, there it, it's not, there's not as much concern when you're talking about the 98% of employees who are meeting or exceeding expectations, who are great examples of the culture, who are engaged, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to your point, it's those, those, uh, the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, the, the bad apples who are kind of dictating the way forward. And it makes me think of this, uh, of another, kind of like a, a layer to this, which is that when companies decide to do something for their population, maybe something good, maybe they want to um, expand their access to something or improve benefits, I feel like most of the time decisions are uh, made against things that expand access and expand opportunity because of that yeah. 2%, because of the worry and risk of someone taking advantage of whatever the company, you know, is trying to then promote as something new. And it's a really good point that you can't, as a company, you can't scale and you can't drive an engaged population by focusing on those who are derailing it. You have to pay attention and invest in those who are building up the culture. Yeah. And, and all these things lead to things like micromanagement as well. Um, because you're assuming, yeah. oh, what, what if somebody in my team is part of that 2%, I need to make sure that they're doing their job. Whereas, you know, again, we, like as a company, we are completely remote. We always have been even before pandemic and everyone is, mm -hmm. mm, and we meet once a quarter, um, for the whole day, um, for meetings and so on. But, you know, everyone just, the other thing that we actually have, uh, again, you know, trying to be different, we don't, we don't track annual holiday. So if somebody wants to take time off, they just send an email to everyone in the team saying, oh, here are the dates when I'm going to be away. We just have to make sure that we coordinate with each other. Um, and I think it goes back to ultimately, a, at a very simple level, it's about just 
treating people like adults rather than thinking employees are like children mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that they're doing what we tell them to do. Yes, exactly. A hundred percent. I used to say this um, when I worked in retail that, you know, these, those who are hired are already over the age of 18 for the most part. 99% of employees are adults. And, you know, sure, maybe you have some, some uh, folks in high school who are trying to get some hours in over the summer, right? Fine. But I always used to say to the managers who often struggled with this, to, the, to your point that we have to treat people like adults, that we are hiring adults. We are not hiring children. We are hiring adults who are trusted to execute on the processes that we've hired them to do. And if you don't allow people to be trusted and treated like adults, they're not exactly. going to act like right. it. And, uh, you know, it's like you're, you, you uh, at some point disable those on the team from b- meeting their potential or doing more if you don't just innately and immediately instill um, not just trust, but also the the respect and understanding that every single person coming to the table is equipped to be able to meet at that table and perform what they've been hired to perform, not thinking about the 2% who might not be mm. able to do that. Um, and this, I, I agree 100%. This, it's a huge challenge, I think, in business and workplaces today that the reason why people often find themselves disengaged, and although there are so many reasons for that, there's flexibility, there's the transparency and all of that, that stuff, but also, if they have a manager who doesn't respect them as an equal or treat them as an adult, then inevitably they're being micromanaged. They're being they're probably being spoken to in a way that's condescending and kind of all of the above. And I'm sure we're all listening to this and thinking about that one person who treated us that way because we all have had that at some point, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's, the, that's the case of the Mondays. <laughs> Yes, right. So actually, the the link is going to be in the show notes. Make sure if you're listening to this that you uh, pick up a copy and you read through A Case of the Mondays so that, and it's a great title, but that that way you can avoid this as a leader yourself, whether you manage teams or not. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because just coming back to this really specific topic of pay transparency, in the US, you know, most states at this point have laws. Mm -hmm regarding, excuse me, regarding transparency, pay transparency, requiring salary ranges and all of that good stuff. At least the most uh, stringent uh, requirements are in California and New York, which is typical. Um, I know just across the globe that these pay transparency laws are continuing to um, take the helm. And we're seeing this not just in the U.S., but across the world. And to your point, I think you said that the statistic was like 85% of Gen Z candidates are not going to apply mm. unless they see the um, the to. salary range. So with that... Less likely sorry? to apply. Less likely to apply. Less likely to apply. Thank you. So understanding that, and to your point before, Gen Z is going to end up soon enough being a, a much larger percentage of the population in the workforce. What are What are you recommending when companies are maybe a little hesitant to post their salary grids? Because I'll tell you, even though there are these requirements across the U.S., there are companies still out there who have not posted their salary grids. So not only are they non-compliant, but also it sends a message that they're either terrified of pay transparency or they do not have their 
you know what together. They're not organized. If your company is remote or hybrid, then you know just how difficult it can be to grow your company's culture beyond a pre-scheduled Zoom happy hour or occasional lunch and learn. Well, this week's sponsor is here to solve that. They're called CultureBot. CultureBot has devised what will likely become the gold standard for growing and blossoming a company culture inside of Slack. The app is like a sidekick for any HR or people professional, automating a lot of the mundane tasks you probably are forgetting to do on a daily basis. Things like birthday and work anniversary celebrations, team shout outs and kudos, employee introductions and remote games. It even has health and wellness tips and conversation starters. If that piques your interest, this will get you even more excited. Today, I'm able to share a special promotion for listeners of the podcast. You can get your first six months of CultureBot for 50% off. Plus, if your team is under 25 employees, CultureBot is free forever. So if you're looking for a way to create a culture of appreciation and drive increased engagement and togetherness across your team, I definitely recommend checking out CultureBot. Go to getculturebot.com slash humanhr. That's getculturebot.com slash humanhr to get the offer. Plus, I've added the link in the show notes, so you can just click right there. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you have some great laws um, in the U.S. In, in, like you said, a lot of states, I think it was over 20 states um, that I looked at that uh, require you to publish mm-hmm. your salary ranges. Unfortunately, in Europe... Um, and the UK, um, the progress on this is very slow. So there is a, an EU directive that is just coming in, which uh, is going to go through at the end of this quarter. And uh, this pay transparency directive will um, include some of the laws that you have in the US, such as um, making sure that you publish salary ranges when you advertise jobs, mm-hmm. um, it will give employees a lot more uh, control as well in terms of asking for information for average salaries for positions for the, uh, that they're doing. But this directive is um, it's going to take three years. It's going to allow um, countries three years to, to make this uh, law, which means that you know there are two or three years for organizations. Unfortunately for the UK... Uh, because we're no longer part of the EU, it's not even uh, applicable. But I think there's a good chance that the UK might adopt some of these laws instead of really lacking behind. So I think some of these changes will take place over time, but uh, unfortunately not as quick as we would like. In terms of organizations um, you know, being reluctant to do this, I think there are a couple of issues. One is over time, they have pay inequities. We know there are pay inequities. You know, a lot, a lot of us who work in HR have access to pay. We sometimes see there are uh, pay inequities, and they they exist for different reasons. One is they can exist because in a lot of organizations, uh, when we recruit, the recruitment process can be based on if somebody has a good recruitment agent, uh, what they're asking for, and it can be based on people's ability to negotiate a good salary rather than being consistent in how we pay people so the negotiation skills can yeah and that's our recruitment stage the other issue that we have is when we look at our employees that are loyal to us and stay with us often tend to lag behind what we recruit new people on because the market right. is moving and uh we're, we can only recruit people on those higher salaries but there's no mechanism for us to progress pay for our employees that are developing their skills, that are making more of a contribution. 
And so I think for those two reasons, there are inequities. And that's what makes organizations nervous to say, if we share salary ranges and our existing employees see that we're <laughs> trying to recruit on salaries that are higher than what they are on, they're going to be unhappy, which they will be. But we need to start understanding why these pay inequities exist um, and then start to address some of them. That doesn't mean everyone has to be on the same salary, but it's about understanding why those differences exist. Are they justified? And if they're justified, again, going back to policies and processes, we need to start to establish um, definitions around why those differences exist. So I would say we, you know, I like to break it down into two steps. So step one is we evaluate a role to say, what are the level of skills, responsibilities, accountability that is needed for a role? And so what is the salary range that we are willing to offer? And let's say that salary range is 40 to 50,000. And step two is we look at the individuals in the role and see what they're contributing, um, whether they're developing in the role or whether they're exceptional and they're you know, coaching and mentoring people within the team. And we come up with definitions to say, this is what we expect in our organization at the lower end of the band, the middle of the band and higher end of the band. So that when we're recruiting, we base our decision purely on what we feel this candidate will bring in terms of their knowledge and skills. And so another thing that we do is we would not ask, well, actually you have a law in the US, you can't ask people about the current salary. So again, unfortunately that doesn't exist in the UK and Europe, but again, when companies are recruiting, they'll ask that question and your current salary will influence how, what you get paid. And so the problem is if you are treated unfairly in your organization, discriminated against, so, you know, often with, uh, people of color, women, those with disabilities, if you're discriminated against, all we're doing is we're transferring that inequity from one organization to another organization. And so, um, I think all of those issues makes organizations nervous about pay transparency, but, um, so it's a journey and they need to make sure that they start looking at these issues because at some point they're going to be forced into sharing ranges and um, they can't just pretend this is not going to happen because it will happen eventually. Right. All of those points were really well, well put. And, you know, just thinking about these transferring inequities, it's really true that sometimes it's unconscious for you know businesses like they're they're not and especially in the U.S. where we're not asking that question what are you currently earning um there is still that transference of the inequity if to your point someone is look you know already being discriminated against or treated inequitably in their current role and maybe a, a company doesn't yet have the salary ranges posted and the question instead has become what's what is the salary that you're looking for and in the candidate's mind maybe they're making $55,000 a year but they should be making $70,000 a year you're going to say oh well you know 63,000 a year sounds really good the company is like great we're saving some money no problem but actually all of that to your point is is a huge breakdown i did an episode when the U.S. started seeing these pay transparency laws roll out um, outside of the states that already had them. 
And I did an episode where I kind of shared like the mechanism of action that I that I took and that I would recommend, which is similar to what you shared. What we did was um, looked at, you know, where everyone sat based on their role already to make sure that our range was uh, comparable to where people sat and that no one was under or below the minimum hmm. range um, that we posted. And that way it, you know, didn't create any gaps or inequity um, unconsciously because, you know, many companies, of course, are looking at pay from an equitable equitable perspective. But when you don't take that action or uh, that um, moment to ensure that you are clear on where your range is going to sit in, in order to uh, um, cover those who are already employed then that makes sense. Obviously, if a range is intended to be higher than where someone would sit, then the recommendation would be kind of what you said to make sure that there's an mm. action to um, elevate yeah. their pay um, so that they're actually within that range rather than lowering the range, but you know, ensuring that it's market uh, comparable. And I think from that episode, I, I got a lot of outreach about um, those who are not really doing any benchmarking or compensation um, analysis today. And while that is a huge part of it, I think the very first step for employers is to actually make sure that they are equipped to pay fairly. So if someone does come into an interview process and says, oh yeah, I think 63,000 sounds good, but the company knows that the range is 70 hmm. to 90, they shouldn't be paying yeah. less than 70. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be accepting the 63 just because the candidate who is their top candidate is being treated inequitably at their prior company. They should just bring them in at the bottom of the range or yeah. wherever in the range they feel is appropriate. Yeah, I, I think this is another point that sometimes uh, uh, gets debated by HR people because, you know, that issue of not asking current salary, uh, because here in, the, in, in Europe, it's not, it's not a law. Uh, most recruitment agents will ask that question and you know mm -hmm. hr people for example would say well you know if our range if we publish a range 40 to 50 somebody's currently on a on 55000 then we're just not going to be able to recruit them so we have to ask them the current salary so we can offer them something they would accept and so yes that may be the case but that doesn't change the fact that you are creating inequity and so i think we need to say right. okay do you really care about EDI or equality, diversity, inclusion, or is that just a PR exercise that you're doing on the side while continuing to act in the same way that you always have been? Mm -hmm. And if you really do care about EDI, you have to change some of these practices to make sure that we get rid of the inequities. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about my own experience. I'll share an anecdote here. That, that law in the U.S., it was fairly new. I would say probably in the last maybe five years, three three to five years, we saw these laws cropping up about not um, being able to ask what someone is earning. And I, my anecdote here, and I'm going to be very, in the spirit of transparency, I'll be transparent. When I uh, left my first job, I, you know, anytime I interviewed, not actually before even leaving, anytime I interviewed when I, you know, first finished college, I was working at Target and, you know, I was definitely paid fairly. Everything was great, but I, I was ready for like the next step and I was interviewing and I never shared my salary when this was allowed to be asked. I never shared my salary exactly as it was. 
I always sure. inflated it. I mean, by probably a lot more than I should have even inflated it. But just because I knew that there was an opportunity yeah. to earn more when you leave an organization, even if you're being paid fairly at your present organization, other companies that are, you know, hiring from the outside, there is just an inflated understanding of the market and it's just the way that it works. And so I share that transparently because I know that all of us do that. And if we're not, if we didn't do that before the pay transparency laws started making it easier for us to be honest about where we want to be and where we sit, um, then we definitely, I think everyone probably was inflating them. Anyone that didn't inflate their salaries is probably part of this cohort of people who feel like they've been treated inequitably. And, you know, and even, even if you inflate your salary, there's still that possibility that you're being treated inequitably. But either way, you know, I, I think about that often that this does dispel that need and that, that, um, energy around having to kind of fight to get what you want, what you feel you deserve and what you want. And the other side of this story is that, um, when it comes to the, the inflation of pay and like the, the laws and everything that are, that are fairly recent, um, when it comes to like companies today, actually the, in California specifically, the, there is a requirement within the pay transparency law that the, um, that there is a report every company provides to the EEOC. And it's basically an EEOC report, an Equal Employment Opportunities Hmm. Commission report that breaks down pay based on demographic and gender and other, um, qualifiers. And so I do think that, um, we, as we, California typically leads the charge for Mm. progressive laws. I think we'll probably see this across more States. And, you know, I only share this in relation to my story because there were, there are definitely moments throughout my career that I can think about where, you know, decisions were made in a way that didn't in immediately dispel any potential for inequity, not to anyone's fault, but just because there wasn't regulation. Yeah. And so I think this regulation should drive forward um, the equity behind pay and other, you know, contributing uh, compensation factors. So that's my story. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. <laughs> so do you think that um, in the U.S., uh, some companies get around this question of what is your current salary by asking what are your salary expectations? Yes. Yeah. We this It happens a lot. I mean, I think now that there, the ranges are required in most, you know, city centers, especially you think of where most people are living, of course, it's across the U.S., but so many jobs are between these like major hubs. Um, where these laws are requiring ranges. So, you know, certainly it's a a bit of a generalization, but for the most part, the ranges are required. And so that question doesn't really have to come up Mm. as much anymore, I don't think, because if a a job says that the range is is 50 to 70K and someone is within that range, I don't think that they're going to even feel the pressure to say exactly what they they need. Um, But at the same time, they're not going to want to be at the bottom of the range. So, in general, yes, companies say, hey, Ramiz, thanks so much for being here. We're excited to get the interview kicked off. But just before we start, what are what are your salary expectations? What are you hoping to get out of this process, et cetera, et cetera? And it's through that salary expectations question 
where candidates can, you know, mm. again, kind of do what I did in the past, which was inflate their, their rate um, or give a range. And I think this is where the ranges came from because candidates would say, well, you know, um, I kind of want to fall within the salary range of, of 60 to 70. And sometimes candidates will actually say, and this is where I am today. So yes, companies, it's a, it's a strategy Mm. for many companies. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Mm. that's, that's interesting because, um, you know, I think now, now if, if I was asked that question, I would try and, you know, navigate that question, but I think it, it can be quite difficult when you're early on in your career because you feel under pressure to say yeah. something because you think oh if i don't give them an answer is it going to impact my career or my chances of getting the job um uh but you know obviously we don't like i said we don't have this law in the uk but i think if um well i always try and encourage people to, if they can and if somebody asks that question is to say I feel like I'm, you know, uh, underpaid and um, in my current job, and that's why I'm looking to leave. And I don't want my current salary mm-hmm. to influence how I get paid in the future. And hopefully, they don't keep prompting and asking that question. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good advice. I know it's. I, I've never thought about what I would recommend if someone doesn't feel comfortable mm. ask, uh, answering that. But I agree with you. I think it's it's that. I think I could also see now with the lens of, you know, at least in the U.S. where these ranges are required, um, that someone could say, you know, I'm not at the bottom of this range, so I really hope to be at least X yeah. and up. You know, I could see that. But I think people are very, very uncomfortable with the pay conversation. And I wouldn't be surprised if this continues to evolve. Um, obviously, it's... It's not so easy for companies to manage these types of like ad hoc um, laws when states, you know, some states require them, some states don't. So actually on that episode that I did a number of months ago about pay transparency and the mechanism of action for companies, I suggested that companies take a um, kind of like a generalized approach and that the, you know, if they, for example, in Florida, uh, the cost of living is much less expensive than the cost of living in New York. So if the range is 50,000 minimum anywhere across the U S that that is the range minimum. And if the most, the highest part of the range in a place like New York is a hundred thousand or 80,000, that that's the top of the range. That way your, you know, companies aren't forced to manage, um, job postings for every single state. And it looks like most companies have kind of taken this approach, but, I think just in general, the ranges probably have helped people to feel less uncomfortable about the conversation. But still, I, I I agree with you. I think when you're newer in your career or you haven't had a ton of experience even in interviewing, it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And um, it's honestly, it's probably why I inflated my my range when I was interviewing back in the day, because I had no idea what was going on, but I also, I wasn't nervous about the conversation, but I was like, well, let's see what I can get out of it. Let's see how high I can go, you know? Um, but most people are not that way. They're probably like, oh gosh, let me, let me deflate my salary so that I don't cut myself out of the running as a candidate. If they don't know what the range Mm. is, I could see that happening too. Yeah. It's It's uh, rough. Yeah. And there's that power dynamic again, right? Because 
one side has all the power. They probably have benchmarked the roles. They have right. the salary range. They're just not willing to share that range with, um, uh, with the candidates. Um, so, um, right. and they're speaking to lots of different people. And actually, a candidate, yeah, and a candidate could ask for the range. I mean, even even in places where the salary range is not um, required to be posted, that could be a good. That could be a. I mean, it's a it's a strong mm-hmm. way to approach an interview. Um, but it's certainly, I think it's, it's something that could provide them transparency if transparency is not currently, uh, regulated and enforced in that location. Yeah. Potentially, (laughs) potentially. Um, anyway, I, I would love to, um, kind of close the loop on some of the transparency conversation and kind of bring it back to these other elements outside of pay that we touched on in the beginning of the episode, how, how are employers today, like those who you work with that maybe are really like pushing the envelope, super progressive, early adopters, doing the most for transparency, what are some creative tactics or solutions that are they applying to be the most competitive, the most progressive when it comes to transparency and equity from a compensation and benefits like standpoint? I think when it when it comes to pay, it's um, it's being clear about um, you know so one of the questions to ask is when where do you typically recruit from when you're hiring people and where do people go when they leave? So if you're in the financial services sector, do they come from other financial services organization or actually could we get people from any industry? And so once you start to understand that, um, then is thinking about things like are we, um, you know, high growth organization? Do we want to pay up a quartile or do we want to stay at the median? Um, so that's, that's the pay philosophy. Then it's going out to do some market research and getting data. So one of the things that we always recommend is, you know, don't use recruitment data because that's based on advertised salaries. It's often based on short term. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's good as a reference point, but don't make, long-term pay decisions based on what might be short-term recruitment trends data that is often based just on job titles so we recommend getting good um, data that uh, you know you participate in surveys and then using that data i think any sort of pay strategy pay transparency has to be really data driven and one of the things that gives leaders and organizations real um you know reassurance is where is the data coming from? So if we're going to be transparent about pay, you know, where, where are you getting these ranges from? What are the other organizations that are participating in this survey or this data that you, so I think that comes with building credibility with leaders. Then um, what they're doing is, um, um, you know, building all these policies and processes, but uh, there's a company in the US called Payscale and they did um, some research a while ago and they found that one of the top predictors of employee engagement was an organization's ability to communicate clearly and honestly about pay. So it's not what you pay people, it's how you communicate them with and honestly. And so in one of their research, there was a group of employees that were paid below the market rate. Their job satisfaction rates were, I think, 42%. But when, uh, again, going back, they were treated like adults. They sat down and explained why this was the case. 
the job satisfaction rate shot up to 80%, so doubled without spending wow. a single penny. So it's all around communication. So I think some of the um, organizations that are really focusing on not just making sure that the processes are there, but having good communication, um, you know, people communi- uh, I consume information in different ways. So, we, we can't just put stuff on the internet and people and think that everyone's going to know about it. So right. it's having employee guides, uh, training videos, uh, one-to-ones. And I think we also need a lot of training for line managers uh, on how to have conversations yeah. around pay. Because I'm sure you might have experienced a lot of the times a line manager will invo- uh, avoid having a difficult conversation and they will just give the outcome and then say, right. Look, oh, sorry, I wanted to treat you in a different way, but HR said that I have to do this. So they'll just pass the blame <laughs> yeah. on to HR. And I think there's a lot of training for line managers as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I was just having a conversation with someone um, at the executive level um, that I used to work with about how like blame is so often placed. It's like usually HR and then like finance. And that's like, you know, those are, those are the mm-hmm. scapegoats. That's how it works. But especially HR, I mean, every decision that can have someone to blame, it's HR's fault. And the reality is, is that not only does that deflect accountability from the person who's actually making the decision, but also to your point, it's a really poor way to communicate because it sends the message that the manager wanted to do more, but it was HR who said no. And now that means that the company doesn't believe in what the manager wanted. And it creates like this riff in, um, in the foundation, a break in the foundation when really these decisions are, you know, they, they have to have kind of like a unanimous understanding of the way forward and everyone's voice should be heard when it comes to making, making these decisions. So I fully agree on the training and the communication. And I like this um, perspective that you shared around, you know, that, that you can, it's not about what you pay. It's about how you communicate it. Um, that I think that's a really important takeaway and probably a, a great place for us to um, segue into saying thank you for joining the podcast, because I think that that is probably the perfect place for us to say, go read A Case of the Mondays so that you are clear on um, everything that we've just talked about. But Ramiz, I'd, I'd love to kind of give it back to you to tell us, tell all the listeners where they can learn more about you, connect with you, and read A Case of the Mondays. Yeah, thanks, Tracy. Um, so people can connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. Um, I think that's the best way to connect. But um, so Case of the Mondays is, like we were saying earlier, you know, that dreaded feeling you have on Sunday night saying I have to go to work. And, you know, I have, uh, I think you mentioned you, you've had that. I had that in one of my jobs. So it's all around how do we create that culture of trust? Um within Mm -hmm. the the workplace and probably the easiest and the best way to start is the first piece of information that we share with our potential employees what they get paid and being fair with that Uh, so you know our mission is to help organizations create and organize uh, a culture of trust through pay transparency and communicate it clearly and so really what i wanted to do was um I gave myself this target in 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 the the lockdown to say, okay, let me write this process down. Uh, we're a small company; we can't work with everyone, but hopefully, we can share the like the the process, the roadmap on how to go through this. So, really, the um, the book is 
a case for HR saying why culture of trust is important. And then it's really a step-by-step breakdown of how to build a culture of trust in your own organization, starting with your strategy and then how to build um, the processes around job evaluation, pay progression, uh, and hopefully help you with building a business case with your leaders as well. And uh, it's available on Amazon and in a few weeks should be on Audible as well. Oh, very exciting. Well, all of the links will be there. Um, and potentially by the time this episode comes out, it will already be on Audible. Um, so make sure you check it out for everyone listening. I think it's an it's an awesome take on a, a societal challenge that businesses can really continue to influence in the right direction. And all of us have a voice. We all have a way of um, challenging the status quo and pushing these things forward. So thank you so much, Ramiz, for joining and for bringing us some some added understanding to this whole concept of pay transparency really appreciate your time thanks tracy and thanks to all of your listeners hey just before you go don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you are the first to hear when an episode drops each week and maybe leave a five-star review and a comment about how much you loved this episode plus if you have someone in mind who would really enjoy this episode make sure you share it with them thank you so much for tuning in and i'll see you next week